Well then, let's uh, turn to Revelation chapter 12 again. And uh, looking to God for his help and guidance, we'll return to verse 12, where we were in the morning. Revelation 12, 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now, aspects of you know, this passage are obviously a bit difficult to understand anyway, but especially so, they will be so tonight if, if for some reason you were not here in the morning. But perhaps in connection with that, I could say two things. First of all, that it is possible to listen to these sermons online, and so it might help you to get a more comprehensive picture of the entire chapter and how it relates to this verse, or how this verse relates to the entire chapter, if you do take the opportunity to listen to that. The other thing in connection with that, of course, is that we do worship God morning and evening, as the Church of God has always done. So, unless for some reason you cannot come, you should strive to be in the house of God, both morning and evening. But in any case, you'll remember that there is a, a great truth underlying this particular text. And the truth that underlies it is the truth of Satan's defeat. The defeat of all the powers of evil, but of Satan preeminently. Satan's defeat at the cross and his resultant casting out of heaven. That is the great fact that underlies this text. Christ, of course, has been raised into glory and honour, just as he had prophesied shortly before his crucifixion. He said, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He does that by first being crucified, lifted up from the earth like that, then being ascended, lifted up from the earth like that, and last of all, being enthroned with his Father in heaven. And simultaneous with that enthronement, there is a dethronement on Satan's part. He has lost whatever privileges he still enjoyed up to this point, if we can use the word enjoy. He is no longer, after the cross, able to enter into heaven he is no longer able to accuse the saints of God to God himself before God's face. And along with all that, he has lost a significant measure of the control that he had over the nations prior to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Prior to that ascension, the nations were largely shrouded in darkness. That's not to say that there were no believers in them, Nonetheless, they were largely shrouded in darkness, but with the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension, the enthronement of Jesus Christ, there is an opening of the door. And as Jesus said, just after his resurrection, he said to the apostles, Go, be witnesses to me, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And in a few short years, you see the spread of the gospel into Europe, and you see it spread into Asia and into the whole world. I'll come back to that in a second. So that measure of control, the devil has lost. Now this event is so great. Um, you can measure its greatness in lots of ways. For example, although there's resistance to this, and people have tried to modernize it, most people still think instinctively of the world B.C. and A.D. That's uh, God's testimony to the importance of these events. There was a world before Christ, 
there's an entirely different world after Christ. And that is a fact at so many different levels. Um, But this is the great decisive turning point in world history. Again, to go back to Christ's words, which I quoted in the morning and which we read in the morning, now is the crisis point of this world. That's the meaning of the Greek word. That's what Jesus said. Now is the crisis point of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And this event is so great, and its pivotal point so important, there is a twofold call issued in verse 12. A call to the heavens now at last to rejoice for reasons which we saw in the morning. But now in verse 12, there's a call to the earth. Now I suppose you would expect in a way that the call to the earth is to rejoice as well, because at last the nations are going to be open to the gospel and the power of God will be unleashed to an extent that it never was before, post-Pentecost onwards. But no, it's not a call to rejoice, strangely. It's actually a pronouncement of woe, which is designed to produce in everyone who hears it a sense of apprehension and fear of some kind. Now, we don't associate that with post-resurrection and the spread of the gospel, But nonetheless, it's real. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. That just means uh, beyond the sea, wherever uh, humanity is placed. Woe to the whole globe. Why? Because, he says, this devil (coughs) that has been cast out of the earth has come down to you. After the cross, after the resurrection and ascension, He has come down to you, and you'll notice that he comes down, if you'd like to say, in a bad spirit, having great wrath. For many different reasons he has that wrath, but what's prioritized here, or what's specified here, is that he's angry because he has a short time. He's only got a short time, and he knows He's only got a short time. Therefore, because he's cast down to you, to the earth, in a state of rage, which is what the Greek word signifies, real rage, woe, look out and be warned. Now I want with you tonight to look at his arrival on the earth. I want to look with you at what he does. In other words, what he's been doing, and he's still doing. Why he does it. And last of all, the woman's response to that. You remember that the woman here is the church. So what he does on earth, why he does it, and the church's response to it. Now when the text here says that Satan was cast to the earth, You'll remember from what we looked at in the morning, that doesn't imply that Satan is new to the earth or that the earth is new to him. In fact, we notice that he's always considered it his domain. And even when he was called to account by God in the days of Job, and God asked him, where have you been, Satan? And he said, from going to and fro on the earth, he said, and walking up and down. That doesn't just indicate that Satan was always present on the earth anyway, or always active on the earth, but that not always present, but always active. He was always busy. He was doing something. But by being cast down to earth, the emphasis is on the fact that he's now confined to it. His operations in heaven somehow are entirely ceased. And he also comes down to earth this time, knowing that his time is short. Previously, as he worked on earth to destroy God's work wherever he found it, especially in our souls, created in the image of God, he did not know that his time was short. But from the moment Christ is enthroned, 
he knows that his time is short. And therein lies the difference. His ministry is confined to earth, entirely excluded from heaven, and his ministry will only last a short time. Now let's look first of all then at what he does. And the simple answer to that is that he persecutes the woman. Now he's always wanted to do that. There's a way in which he's been persecuting this woman right down through history. From the time of the Garden of Eden, he's been chasing and harassing the Church of Christ, especially waiting for the birth of the male child. You'll remember that. And you'll remember from verse 4 and halfway through verse 4 that the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour the child as soon as it was born. So that's the special attention of Satan at the time of Jesus' birth. But in verse 6, you'll remember that after Christ rises from the dead and is enthroned in heaven, we read in verse 6 that the woman, that's the church, flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. But the devil, of course, follows her there. And that's what we're told in verse 13, when the dragon saw that his own sphere of operations is confined to the earth, that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, that's the church, who gave birth to the male child, Christ. And not only her, but you'll also notice in verse 17 that the dragon was so enraged with the woman that he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. This church has other children who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So this war just never stops. It's always been going and there are some ways in which it seems to get worse, certainly from his point of view. Now he goes to war with the woman with her children, with the rest of her offspring. That takes us back to a text I referred to in the morning. It's in Isaiah 66. And it's a promise of the church becoming very, very fruitful at a certain point in her existence. Now, in fact, Isaiah refers to that quite a few times. In, in the well-known passage, Isaiah 53, we have a suffering saviour who is dying for sinners. And then suddenly chapter 54 bring, begins with a call to the church to sing. Sing, you who have not borne, you who have not labored with child. For the children of the desolate are suddenly becoming more numerous than the children of the married woman. And there's a call to the church to enlarge your tent, <coughs> Let them stretch out the curtains of your dwelling places. Don't spare. Make it as big as you can. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. Because, he says, you're going to expand to the right and to the left. And your descendants, as the people of God, will inherit the nations. And desolate cities will become inhabited. And you will forget the shame of your youth. Your maker is your husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name. Now, that is a marvellous promise, and it will happen very quickly too. It happens at certain revival points in the church's life, but there's a special time when we read, before she was in labour, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. But then suddenly, the earth is made to give birth in one day. Shall a nation be born at once? The question is inviting the answer, yes. Because as soon as Zion, that's the church, was in labor, she gave birth to her children. And God says, shall I bring these children to the time of birth and not actually cause delivery? No, he says. Not only will I work in their souls and in their hearts, but I'll bring them across. 
Shall I who cause delivery close the womb? No, he says. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her that you may be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the expansion and the abundance of her glory. And so it goes on. Now, that tells us that this woman, when she gives birth to the male child, is suddenly going to give birth to lots of children. When, when the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes forth from the womb of the church, God is not closing that womb. In fact, it's one child after another. At Pentecost, 3,000 people are converted in one day. Later, 5,000 people are added to the church. And these pilgrims who are coming from north, south, east and west, they go back and they bring the gospel with them. And they all have the same mark on them. They've all got the same mark of authenticity. The seed here, we're told, you'll notice in verse 17, the dragon is enraged with the woman. He goes to make war with the rest of her offspring. And here's the characteristic. They keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. I mentioned in the morning that there's a harlot church too in the book of Revelation. There's a false church. There's a spurious church. This is the harlot who rides the beast in Revelation 17. And all her children have a mark as well. The mark is 666. They've got that mark on them. They serve the beast. They're loyal to him. But here's the mark of the true people of God. They simply keep the commandments of God and they adhere to the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, they are proud to stand with the Lord. They are glad to stand with the Lord. The Lord has stood with them. It's the Lord that they want to stand with. And therefore they keep the commandments of God. You'll notice how practical a mark that is. It's not a, it's not a mark that you have to look deep down inside for. Their love and commitment to God is obvious because they cleave to him as first in their lives and externally they keep the commandments of God. They delight to keep them. They love to keep them. I hope that you can find such a mark in yourself. It's an easy mark to find in that respect. Can you say tonight that I love the Lord and that his commandments are not burdensome to me, that his commandments are a delight to me, that I love to walk in his ways and to keep his precepts? If we can say these things, then surely we also are the offspring of this woman and brethren of the firstborn, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this woman who gives birth to the male child who ascends into heaven, she first of all dwells in Jerusalem. But you, you remember that a Jewish persecution very quickly broke out against the infant church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the Jews did not want to consider the church of Christ a part of herself. And they began to become hostile. They, they would beat up preachers like Peter and John. Uh, they started a, a vicious persecution which ended in the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, after he preached the famous sermon in Acts chapter 6. And then we read in Acts chapter 8 that something marvellous happened. <coughs> We read that at that time a great persecution arose against the church at Jerusalem. That's the woman. That's the woman. And they were all scattered throughout Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So a large number of people went out including all the Christian teachers with the exception of the apostles. And Saul made havoc of the church Entering every house, but an amazing change came upon Saul of Tarsus, by the way. And so it's hard to think of the man who wrote Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians, and so on, as this man. It's almost hard to think of him like this. He made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging men and women off, and committing them to prison. Now, this is God's providence. You see, sometimes He promises a thing. And then it starts to look so unlikely. The Lord Jesus Christ had said to the woman, to the church, 
Go, he says, and be witnesses to me in Jerusalem first, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Now, who would have thought that the means by which Judea and Samaria would come to the knowledge of Christ would be persecution? But it was persecution. It's because of the hostility in Jerusalem that these people went to Judea and Samaria and they witnessed, they testified with their lives, just like you would call to do and me. Some of them were preachers of the gospel. And lo and behold, the church was added to, the kingdom of Christ extended into Judea and Samaria. Sin may abound, persecution may abound, but the grace of God always much more abounds. That's why, as the people of God, we need not fear the devil in that respect, and we need fear no evil, because the Lord will always turn these things to good account. So the woman flees into the wilderness. But later, she has to flee further. We're told that she flees into the wilderness, actually, in verse 14, on the two wings of a great eagle. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Now it's been suggested by some people that the two wings of an eagle here is a reference to the Roman Empire which gave the church, uh, well much later on, some kind of shelter. But I don't think that's the reference here at all. There's a a much more obvious reference. The book of Revelation is just bristling with symbols from the Old Testament. And and really that's where we have to look to find the keys to unlock the seemingly difficult parts. And well, as well as seemingly difficult, there are very difficult parts. But nonetheless, when you take keys from the Old Testament, it opens up. God describes himself as bringing his people out of the furnace of Egypt on eagles' wings and bringing them in and through the wilderness. Surely the reference here is just to that, that God looks after the woman. God, as it were, just puts his wings underneath his own church and he takes her out into the wilderness. There may be difficulties there too, but he will see to it that she is nourished there, that she is kept for a time and for times, and for half a time. Now, that of course is a difficulty. You'll just find throughout the book of Revelation that there are various references to three and a half years. They just crop up all the time. The peculiar thing is that the three and a half years are described in different ways. Sometimes they're called 42 months. Sometimes they're called a time, a times, and half a time. Two plus one and a half, again, is three and a half years. Sometimes the time interval is called 1,260 days, like you've got here, which is, again, three and a half years. Now, I'm just going to come clean and say that I'm not sure why the difference why is it sometimes times, a time and half a time, 1,260 days, or three and a half years, or 42 months? I don't know. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to keep looking to trying to find out and asking God's help in doing so. But it's interesting to note that this period of time is always marked out by three things in Scripture. First of all, it is the time when the Antichrist is present and prevailing. Now, people are looking for the Antichrist, waiting for him to come. Don't waste your time. He's been around a long time, and he's still here, and he will probably be for some time yet. I'm not going to elaborate on that right now. But the Antichrist lasts, too, for three and a half years. Three and a half years is also the time when we're told that Jerusalem will remain in Gentile control. Jesus himself said that. You also actually find it in Revelation chapter 11 here. Now that's on your page pretty much. If you just go back to it, it's easy for you to go back to it. 
Revelation 11, verse 1. There's a lot of this I'm just, I'm just going to leave without explanation. Uh, I don't want to overcomplicate everything. But notice simply in Revelation 11 and verse 1, I was given a reed like a measuring rod. So that's what John sees. Given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood and said, Rise, he says, and measure the temple of God, which is still standing at this point. Uh, some people say Revelation was written later. It was actually written before the destruction of the temple. Rise and measure the temple of God. Measure the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple. Don't measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will, now notice this, they will trample the holy city, that's Jerusalem, underfoot for 42 months. Here we go again. 1,260 days. Three and a half years. The Gentiles will trample on Jerusalem for 42 months. But during that time I'll give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy, well, here you are again. 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now Christ referred to this too. Let me take you back to the book of uh, to the Gospel according to Luke and in chapter 21. By all means, if it's easy for you just to look these things up, just do so. But I'll speak them anyway. In Luke 21 and verse 23. This is page 1626. Now Christ is here describing the destruction of Jerusalem which is going to happen 40 years after his own crucifixion. And in verse 23, he says, Woe to those who are pregnant and who are nursing babies in those days. That's when Jerusalem is encircled by the Roman armies. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And then he brings us to the destruction in AD 70. They will fall by the edge of the sword and they will be led away captive into all nations. And you're well aware that the Jews were led away captive long, long ago. And then notice what he says, And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What that's telling us is, after AD 70, Jerusalem is going to lapse into chaos it is no longer going to be exclusively a Jewish homeland. In fact, the Gentiles will trample over it, rule over it, maybe desecrate it, until the time comes when the Jewish people return there and the whole land comes back under their sovereignty. That has not happened yet. It's nearly happened. And I can't help but wonder if some of these things are coming very, very close to the time of their fulfillment. Even now the United Nations maintain that the best solution for sovereignty is for the United Nations to rule over it. Of course the Jews say the whole city is historically theirs. The most sacred part of it is under the power of Islam. So it will be until the Lord's timetable comes to pass. So during these 1,260 days, can we take that as the whole gospel era? Yes, the three and a half years is characterized by the Gentiles trampling Jerusalem. It's also characterized, as we saw, by the time of the Antichrist. And it's also characterized by true gospel preaching. As we saw in Revelation 11, the two witnesses are all this time preaching. Very often in sackcloth, in mourning, they're sowing the seed in very difficult circumstances, but mysteriously, Revelation 11 says that they have the power by their preaching and prayer to open heaven and to shut it. The book of Revelation teaches the same thing elsewhere. Uh, you have images sometimes of the prayers of God's people going up like incense, and then God responds by casting fire upon the earth. These are wonderful teachings. You know, we sometimes wonder... 
What power does accompany prayer? Well, there it is for you. The prayer ascends. This is Revelation 8. The prayers ascend like incense, and then the response is cast down upon the earth. There's a real, vital, spiritual connection between the prayer you make to God and what actually happens upon the earth. And Revelation teaches that, but so do so many other parts of God's scripture. And here the prayers of God's people and the preaching of these two witnesses, whoever exactly they are, uh, it's a preaching of the gospel, it opens heaven and it shuts it. Now, again, if you know your Bible pretty well, you may see a connection here between these things and another difficult time in in Israel's life. A three and a half year period when all seemed lost. And it seemed lost because Ahab and Jezebel had plunged the country into complete and utter spiritual confusion and chaos. God took Elijah from nowhere and said to him, Pray, Elijah, that the heavens will be shut. Pray for a famine. And Elijah prayed for a famine. That famine lasted three and a half years. And what did God do in that period of famine? Well, he took the prophet into the wilderness. He sustained him by meat carried by ravens from a king's table and by the little brook of cherub that was getting drier and drier and drier. And there were 7,000 families that God was mysteriously preserving in Israel throughout that time of famine. There's a clear connection here. John is saying to this church when she's being persecuted, God will look after you. God will look after you. He will keep you and he will feed his people. Mm-hmm. Now, there were so many examples of that in him. If you think about Israel going through the wilderness long, long ago, they were kept miraculously sometimes. Manna from heaven, water from the rock. He keeps his people in the wilderness. Elijah kept beside the brook Cherith. And here the woman is kept too. She flies into the wilderness to her place. You'll notice it's a place prepared by God where she is nourished for this time and times and half a time from the presence of the Savior. Now, it gets worse before it gets better. When the devil can't reach the woman directly, we're told that he opens his mouth and begins to spew out water. He spews out a flood which he hopes will carry the church away. Now, what is the flood that comes from the serpent? Well, there's a flood from our own heart, is there not? Our Lord tells us that It's out of the heart of man that proceeds all evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, and thefts, and blasphemies. There's a constant stream out of our heart. And I suppose the more you drink that stuff, the more it comes out. What comes out of us has a huge relationship to what comes into us. I know that there are things that are innate and woven into our nature, but a lot of what goes out is a lot of what we've taken in. Now, at the end of the day, you can only spew what you swallow. You can only vomit what you have taken in. And the fact of the matter is that the devil lives himself on a diet of filth and falsehood. And when he spews out this flood to take the woman, it's just a tide or a flood of filth and falsehood. You think of all the isms that have gone round in the world, which all have an element of truth in them, but are seized upon by the world, and these things deceive the world. There are so many of them. You have fascism and communism politically. You have things like empiricism and hedonism. You have pluralism, feminism. You have modernism, postmodernism. I could go on and on and on. You have the philosophies of people all the way through from Plato right up through people like Hume and Kant, Wittgenstein and so on and so on. Ideas and theories of politics and economics. 
And all the time and all these things God has left out. It's as though we have the answers to our own predicaments and our problems. But as a rule of thumb, if you see anything that's an ism, leave it alone. An ism will be taking hold of a grain of truth here and making it everything. That's what isms do. The truth is in Christ. The truth is in the word of God. It's not an ism. The truth as it is in Christ Jesus. That is the only rule to direct us how we can actually live our lives the way God wants us to live them by glorifying himself and indeed enjoying him forevermore. And as well as the flood of theories, whether political, philosophical, psychological, or economic, or whatever, there is the flood tide of iniquity. He spews that out in order to seduce the woman or to take her aside from her calling, which is to serve God. Now, we're told in Isaiah that there are times when the evil comes in like a flood. Comes in like a flood. And then we need the Spirit of God to raise up a standard against him. Now, we live in a day when iniquity is coming like a flood. Who can deny that? And I mean, we have devices, you know, computers and phones. And I'm not saying that they can't do good. They do do good. And most of them are now necessary for day-to-day life. But there's a big difference between you being in control of it and it in control of you. I remember talking to somebody recently who was telling me that they... They didn't allow their children to have a television in the bedroom. And I absolutely agreed with that. But I said to them, do they have a mobile phone in the bedroom? And I said, well, yes. Well, I said, you might as well give them a TV. You might as well give them 20 TVs. It's there. The devil knows how to get in and how easily to get in. He knows how to manipulate us into certain situations that we are just exposed to evil and we give in to evil. Just a tie. And he wants to carry the woman along on this tide of iniquity to get her to do what the child didn't do. The child was faithful and true, but maybe the woman can be brought into sin. And of course we end up in our day with people glorying in shame, months dedicated to all kinds of perverse behavior. I mean... I find it hard to believe the kind of stuff that you're seeing, the kind of people that march down the street and, uh, and, and they're shaking their, their bodies of children. Um, and, and people are lining up and applauding this. I mean, I must admit, I used to wonder years ago how cities could become as decadent as Sodom and Gomorrah did. I used to wonder how it was possible for a man to go through a city like that um, how it was impossible for a man to go through a city like that without being gang-raped by other men in the city square. I, I used to wonder, come on, how, how could a city have got like that? I don't wonder anymore. It's not difficult, actually. Behaviour like that, whatever the arguments about innate and acquired, one thing sure, it can be acquired, and it can be taught, and it can be perpetuated. And it can be taught children as not just a viable alternative, but the best thing to be. Make it interesting, attractive, and the thing to be. That's the spew. That is the vomit from the devil who tries to deviate us from the path on which God set us. It's a sad thing if people are on that path. And I'm certainly not saying that the people who are on that path need anything but the gospel. And what advocating and no true preacher of the gospel ever has advocated harassing people or distressing people or <clears throat> making their lives miserable or anything of that kind. But these people are on precipice. And they're on the precipice of a lost eternity. And we need to remind them of that. That the place that they stand in is both evil and dangerous. And what they need to do is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So during this three and a half year period, the devil is working hard to make people anti-God, anti-Christ, and anti-Christian. It's his vomit. It's his spew. And as well as all that, he's busy all this time accusing the Lord's people. Now you'll remember in the morning, one of his names, of course, is the accuser of the brethren. 
In the morning we clarified that he no longer has access into the presence of God to make a formal accusation against them. He did, but he doesn't anymore. But that doesn't stop him accusing in this world, accusing us to each other and accusing us to ourselves. Accusing us to each other, we've got to be careful about that, friends. I mean, it's, it's easy to take up an evil report about someone and to spread it. It's easy to take up a lie and to spread it. It's good to have a rule that you don't believe a bad thing about a person until you know it to be true. That's because for the simple reason that that's how you'd like people to deal with yourself. The Lord gave us the golden rule to, to deal with others or to do unto others as you would have them to do to yourself. You, you would like people to give you a judgment of charity, give others a judgment of charity. Psalm 15 describes the Christian as a person who does not take up an evil report. Um, There may be situations where you do hear something that you maybe need to pass on to somebody who has some kind of locus in the matter, some kind of authority to deal with it. That's very different from saying, hey, did you hear? And hey, did you hear? And hey, did you hear? No. The devil is involved in that, accusing trying to get me to think less of you, trying to get you to think less of me. Just be vigilant for that all the time. Deal with people as you find them and take them as you find them until you have good reason to think otherwise. And as well as accusing us to each other, he accuses us to ourselves. I was talking in the morning about the intelligence of this uh, devil who has the seven heads and the ten horns extremely intelligent and all the powers of evil are intelligent and they're constantly at you you know that there's a seducement to sin why don't you do this it's not as bad as you think it is other christians do it other people who are called christians do it anyway on you go and do it and even when you do it it's always easy to repent and just get back on a right footing with god and then lo and behold you do it and suddenly the devil says why did you do that do you realize that christians don't do that real christians don't do that you wouldn't have done it so easily if you were a real Christian. He can change his tune just like that. He can condemn you. And the one place he wants to... Well, there are two places he wants to bring you. One is presumption, that you're invincible and you can do what you like. The other is despair, that nothing you can do will avail anything before God. That's the skilla and the Haribidus. It's the original rock and the hard place. Uh, the, the rock and the whirlpool. Uh, he'll want you to sink in the one or smash up on the other. And you've just got to sail through in the middle. And you've got to remember all the time that the Lord Jesus Christ forgives sins. He forgives sinners. And irrespective of what we've been, irrespective of what we've been, he receives the sinners who comes to himself. But the devil hates the mother. And he hates the mother's children because he hates her firstborn child, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this persecution is relentless and ongoing. Why does he do it? Well, I would suggest to you, friends, that the devil's motive has changed through the years. Before Christ's victory, there was always a possibility that he might win the battle himself. Now you may well say, well surely that's a foolish thing to believe, but let me answer that in three ways. The first answer I would give to that is that his original sin is foolish too. He was the first creature that ever sinned. He took pride in how God had made him, and he tried to be something that he was not. There's a stupidity in that. The second answer I would give you is that all sin is stupid anyway. When I think of myself and my own sin, it's stupid. As well as evil, it's stupid. There is something laughable about lawlessness and about not being what God has called us to be. Some of the things we try and do are are really ridiculous. That's why in Psalm 2 it says that he who sits in heaven shall laugh. The context there is a cosmic rebellion against himself. Well, God laughs at a rebellion. Why does he laugh at a rebellion? Because it's stupid. Stupid. As well as evil. I mean, it's, it's like a small colony of ants or something trying to take on the, an empire. Stupid. 
But there's a third reason too. If rebellion against God is one thing, you have to remember that for the devil, rebellion against Christ is another. Rebellion with God may have an element of stupidity attached to it, but trying to rebel against the Son is not so stupid. What do I mean by that? Well, the Incarnation, friends, is a game changer. It's a game changer. The minute the Son of God appears in a human form, as a child, in weakness, in poverty, in difficulty, in hard circumstances, is he not fair game? Has he not appeared in the world as a genuine man? Is he not fair game? It was not possible to tempt the Almighty, even if it was possible to rebel against him, but it is possible to tempt him. Is it not possible in all his difficult situations to bring him to a place where he sins, even in his thoughts? After all, the devil can say, long, long ago in the Garden of Eden, I found a holy man and a holy woman, and despite their holiness, I seduced them into sin. Is it not just possible that this mysterious event has brought God into a situation where it's possible for me to bring him into sin. Now you may say, well, that's impossible, but so might I. We can say that from a theological armchair, but from the devil's position, he's fair game. Else, why waste his time? But with the conquest of Christ, friends, Satan's motive changes. From the moment the Lord is raised in resurrection glory and enthroned in heaven, well, that's a game changer too. In the sense that from that point onwards, it's a lost cause from the devil's point of view. And he knows it to be a lost cause. So why then bother? Why then bother stalk the earth raging? Well, I'm sure you've heard the expression that if I'm going down, I'll take down you with me. Take you down with me. If he can't take God down, if he can't take the Son of God down, he can take the woman down, and he can take the seed down. And why would he bother doing that? Because he hates them. <coughs> Love and hate are powerful motives, are they not? Of the two of them, I'm sure you would agree that the greatest is love. There is no motivator on earth or in heaven like love. It was love itself that made God send his only begotten Son into this world, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Solomon, in the song that I <coughs> refer to this morning, which is called the Song of Solomon, and in chapter 8 and verse 6, <coughs> tells us that the church says to her Saviour, Set me as a seal on your arm, on your heart. Set me as a seal on your arm. Now that's a kind of thing. Uh, people used to carry the names of people they loved on either close to their heart, and as people still do, sometimes in the form of a kind of pendant or something that carries the name, or on their arm. It's kind of bracelet. Set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm, because love is as strong as death. Jealousy, now jealousy here is the good kind, not the bad kind. Jealousy is as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame, literally in the Hebrew, a flame of Jehovah, a flame of Jehovah. There is no power in heaven or earth stronger than love. Second is hate. Hate. You know, when people really hate, it's amazing how consumed they are by it. Um, we're told of what's the man's name? Haman in Esther. Uh, Esther was he hated the Jews. We're told that he just hated the Jews. He had a passionate hatred for them. He especially hated Mordecai, who he saw every day. Couldn't stand him at all. Mordecai, of course, refused to bow down before Haman. Haman had an intense hatred for him, and God, of course, began to uh, to work things in a strange way. And Haman suddenly saw himself being promoted by the king. 
And we're told that Haman went out that day joyful with a glad heart. But when he saw Mordecai in the king's gate, when he saw that Mordecai still did not tremble before him, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. But Haman restrained himself and went home, sent for his wife and his friends. And then Haman told all of them of his wealth, how many children he had, the way in which the king had recently promoted him, and advanced him above all the officials and servants. And, he says, Queen Esther has invited no one but me to come in to the king's banquet tomorrow. Yes, yet, he says, all of this avails me nothing as long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. None of it mattered. Because he hated Mordecai. And Mordecai's pleasure was his misery. And Mordecai's misery was his pleasure. Now when you reach that way, you're in a bad way. Well, it's in a bad way that Satan lives. When he comes to earth knowing that his cause is lost, does that mean he's going to give up the fight? Far from it. Because he hates the one who defeated him. And he's so consumed with it that he'll try his utmost. He's in a rage this time. He's never in a good temper. But after the cross, he's in a rage to destroy anyone or anything that has the name or the glory of Christ associated with it. And every blow that he strikes at a Christian, for him, is a blow that he strikes at the Christ that he can't reach. You can be like that sometimes too. You may... You may know people, or you may have been one, maybe you even are one, though you're here tonight, and you don't really like Christians, and you don't mind things being spoken against Christians, and really it's not them that you do hate, it's their God. If you were to strip it away, it's their God. I once heard said that when Cain killed Abel, it's because he couldn't reach God to kill him. That is so true. And his anger is worse because he only has a short time. Now, it's not short to you or to me. I mean, between the cross and now, it's pretty long. It's 2,000 years. And I don't know how long it's going to be until the millennium comes or until the end of the world comes. I don't know. One thing I do know is that it's not short to God because a 1,000 years is like a day and a day is like a 1,000 years. And I do know that it is short to the devil because he knows that his doom is coming up. It's amazing when you know that your doom is coming, everything. Time is a funny thing. Five minutes in heaven is so different from five minutes in hell. Time elongates or shortens depending on whether you're enjoying yourself. We all know that. But as far as he's concerned, his time is short to agitate the nations, to deceive individuals, to deceive families, to deceive peoples, or to distress souls. And let me tell you that the nearer you get to Christ, he's afraid that his time is short there too. Uh, and that's why he starts to really work at you as you start getting interested in the gospel. I've come across this so often, it's unbelievable, that people's lives are going swimmingly well until suddenly they become convinced of sin, and they start getting interested in the gospel, and then everything starts to go pear-shaped. Just when they thought maybe everything would go right, well, don't, don't be downcast about that. And the devil doesn't let me say that either, for that matter. Don't be downcast about that. Because he feels or senses that his time is short. I often make a reference to the young boy who was demon-possessed. And when they took him to the feet of Christ, he began to convulse. The evil spirit began to convulse him. Why? Because he was just about to be healed. And the devil was trying to discourage his father. And for his father just to take him away and say, well, there's no point here, is there? I mean, if Christ was that powerful, would the child be convulsing at the feet? Ah, but the Lord just dealt with him there and then. Whenever he knows his time is short, or whenever he expects his time is short, whether with a soul or with a people, he convulses himself in paroxysm of anger to destroy I mean, if you're going to carry the image of Christ, he wants to stop that. But he can't, friends, defeat God's people. They are safe, and they have a victory. And they have safety and victory 
because uh, of what Christ has done for them. Now you're here tonight as a Christian. The devil doesn't know if you're definitely a Christian or not. I suppose he'll spend the rest of your days testing that out. He thought Job was an imposter. He thought Peter was an imposter. Maybe he thinks you're an imposter. But you know you're not an imposter. And the best evidence you can give Satan of that really is when you're on your knees before God just yourself, calling on his name, hearing his word and praying. That's when the devil trembles most because he most suspects your sincerity. But how safe are you practically? Well, you're this safe practically. First of all, you are irresistibly drawn to Christ tonight. Jesus said, when the prince of this world is cast out, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to me. Is that not true? You're drawn tonight to the Saviour. You're as drawn as a Christian tonight to the Saviour as you were when you first believed. The sheer magnetism of the man, the sheer magnetism of the God-man, his beauty in life, in his speech, in his conduct, the wonderful words that he spoke when no man spoke like this man, the tenderness of his love, his compassionate nature, his willingness to save, the way in which he's still willing to forgive sin. Yes, you're drawn to him. These people are also kept by the power of God. True Christians are kept by the power of God. That power that gives them renewed faith, renewed love, and renewed repentance, even when they sin. And they're kept because of the provision that God makes for them, like he made for this woman in the wilderness. He's made for you the provision of the bread of life and the water of the world. And you, you drink it in. You don't drink in the stuff the serpent spews in your direction, but you drink gladly in the word of God, which is there to nourish and to sustain your soul. And what's more, you prevail. Verse 11. Now, I've so mismanaged my time that I can't say a lot of what I wanted to say, but I'll just say a little bit of it for two or three minutes. You'll notice that these people of God overcome in verse 11. This is in our text, Revelation 12, 11. And they overcame, that's the brethren on the earth, they overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Three things enable you to overcome the power of Satan's against you. If you're not in Christ tonight, you've got no chance. No chance. But in Christ tonight, you overcome in three ways. First, by the blood of the Lamb. First in order, first in importance. Nothing is as important as the blood of the Lamb. Nothing is as important as your justification. Whenever Satan is on your back, harassing you and keeping you low, the first and the greatest thing you need is just to look to the sacrifice that was offered once for all for sin, the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, that's why it's a waste of time for the devil to enter heaven, really, supposing he still wanted to, to make his accusation. How can he make an accusation when Christ is there now? <coughs> In the past, when he made an accusation, all you had was the high priest or somebody else going in with the blood of bulls and goats. But now to appear in the presence of God to make an accusation, there is a man at his right hand with wounds in his hands, wounds in his feet, and a wound in his side. And when that man, who is the justifier of the ungodly, stands there, what's the point in making an accusation? No point. Well, neither is, a point, is there a point in ma making an accusation against yourself. Does your sin bother you? I'm not saying it shouldn't. But what I do say to you tonight is in the simple transparency of faith, just take it and lay it on him. Lay it on him. <coughs> and say, that, say to God that you believe his word, that the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses you from all sin. And the devil can't stand that text. And he cannot stand that blood. And he cannot stand that prayer. But that makes you prevail. They prevailed by the blood of the Lamb. Second, they prevailed 
by the blood, sorry, by the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony is just the fact that they were willing to testify on Christ's side. They were willing to testify as to who he was and his glory and his excellence. They were willing to testify to the ability of his blood to save. And they gave a testimony to that in their own lives and in their own life and conduct. They are not ashamed to own their Lord. And Jesus, of course, said that if we are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. But if we confess him before men, he will confess us before the Father. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Whenever you testify to the truth of God, to the glory of Christ, Christ confesses you to the Father. He owns you because you own him. He owns or acknowledges you. Last of all, as well as prevailing by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony, we're told at last that they did not love their lives to the death. Strange expression. They did not love their lives to the death. What that means is that right up to the point of their death, they still didn't love their own lives first. It would be easy under persecution to reach a place where you say, actually I love my own life better than I love the Lord. Christ says that we mustn't just renounce the world, we must lose our own lives also. He doesn't mean by that a physical death, which may be required of us, I don't know. But what he means by it is just that we must be willing to put ourselves second and Christ first. If you lose your life in that way, you'll find it. How true that is. You'll discover for the rest of your life the beauty of spiritual self-denial once you start putting Christ first. That's when life begins. It's paradoxical. Make yourself the goal of everything, you start being miserable. Make Christ the goal, suddenly life is different. They didn't love their lives even to the death. In fact, many of them lost their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice, O heavens, woe to the earth, or be warned and be ready, because the devil has come to you in anger, knowing that his time is short. One way to deal with it, the blood, the testimony, and be faithful unto death. I have gone on too long, I apologize, but let's call on God's name and prayer. O Lord, enable us to know thee, power of conquest through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, while the devil may be powerful, that power is eclipsed by the power of God at work in him, the power of God even at work in ourselves, the power of God that can still be unleashed in our own hearts through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Lord, we feel for and pray for those who are tonight still uh, without hope and without God in the world. We are uh, distressed at thinking that there may even be souls here tonight who are perishing. Lord, will you not come and visit them and call them even through this worship and through the message that has been preached, that they may go home, that they may consider and yield their lives to the Lord confessing him who will most certainly confess them in the great day of judgment. Amen. <coughs> Our last singing is 124. stanzas and will sing the last two stanzas. Israel may say, and that truly, this is the second version, the irregular meter, if that the Lord had not our cause maintained, if that the Lord had not our rights sustained, when cruel men against us furiously rose up in wrath to make of us their prey, then certainly they had devoured us all and swallowed quick or swallowed alive 
for all that we could deem. Such was their rage, and it's a devilish rage, as we might well esteem, and as fierce floods before them all things drown, so had they brought our soul to death quite down. He then describes the escape, and we'll stand uh, to sing verses 5 to 8 to the praise of God. <laughs>